Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. That's the conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's him over there, and the economist and author Will Page, that's me over here. And this is what we do for you. We lay out the inconvenient truths about how the business and financial markets really work. And this week, just like Bill Withers would say, it's just the two of us. We're going to turn our attention back to the private markets, where Richard's prior smoke signals may be bearing fruit. That is, we're getting reports that the private equity is playing parcel parcel, selling assets to themselves, huh? That they can't exit, and by doing so, at their own valuations. Is this marking your own homework? Is this delaying a bubble that's sure to burst, or is it simply remortgaging from one bank to another? We love smoke signals on this show, and this feels like a good one, so we'll be back with parcel parcel. More in a moment. 
They can operate the companies according to whatever rules they choose or the, their funds according to whatever rules they choose. And like every investor, these funds depend on buying low, oftentimes borrowing money to buy low, and selling high, ostensibly, in the case of private equity, trying to add some value in the process, which isn't necessarily what you do buying a share of a company as, a, as one of a million equity owners. So they have a more of a stake in the operations of the company than your average investor, and they tend to invest with funds that they borrow, not their own money. So you're buying low with someone else's money. And of course, I can smell it already. If interest rates go up, that could upset the, the, the calculation about how much money you can make from a deal, correct? Yeah. And, and the, the issue is that the managers of private equity funds may buy five companies, whereas a stock portfolio may have 100 stocks. But those five companies, they will maybe own the whole thing and take on the running of those companies as well as what happens far too often is they load them up with debt. Um, private equity managers often buy low-wage service industry companies where they can cut the cost quickly. As a matter of fact, it, in the two years after being bought by private equity, the average company gets staff cut by 5 to 10%. And then the private equity managers can take whatever assets they see in the company, for example, real estate, and try to sell them, especially if they think those assets are undervalued. And I'll give you a very, very simple example. If you think of a company that has a motor pool of 10 cars and a private equity owner comes along and says, well, I can sell those 10 cars for $100,000 and I, I, I own the company now and I'm going to lease them back to you. So you have to pay $10,000 a year for the next 10 years to, to still own these cars, but I'll have already sold them and taken the money and left you with the obligation, another way of saying, leaving them saddled with a debt. So the private equity owners often are stepping in and taking over the assets of a company, selling them off to, to fund their purchase, and then leaving the company with the resulting debts. So debt-laden debt eggs in fewer royalty baskets, yep. or fewer investment baskets. So mm. let's have you flying over the private equity market at 30,000 feet and just give our audience a quick roundup of what's going on in private equity right now. Well, you've had this enormous private equity boom for the past 20 or 30 years, largely because the ability of these private equity groups to borrow money at near zero costs has allowed them to pick over any business and, and try to take it private and try to own it itself. And one of the key points that helps these companies is alongside the cheap capital that they get to operate in secret. So a private equity fund, let's say it owns 10 businesses, they don't have to report to anyone on each of those individual businesses. The way they value those companies can be very complex, but it's only the management team of that equity fund that, that can see those numbers. So there's a real information asymmetry for these companies, for these funds, saying what their companies are worth and how they choose to run them compared to the companies that you and I could pour over their annual reports and get all the details. Yeah, let me just pick up on that. Just maybe for our audience's benefit, pick it over in terms of your average Joe Blow shareholder versus a private equity fund. Give us some distinctions. Again, if you bought a share in a public utility like BT, you would be one of millions, hundreds of millions, possibly billions of shareholders. And you don't have, other than your vote at the AGM every year, much of a say in how the company is run or how much debt it should have or, or where it should invest. But if you're a private equity owner and you own one business, let's say, or 10 businesses, 
for each of those businesses, you could say, we're going to saddle you with an enormous amount of debt. We're going to force you to sell your assets now so we can take the money away and leave you with a, a lease liabilities. We're going to force you to fire people instead of trying to improve your services or invest less in infrastructure, as we heard about from Fergal Sharkey talking about the water companies. And we're going to take the money out because we control the company and we control it out of view of the public. We're, we're controlling it in a place where people don't really scrutinize our, our accounts. And the one other thing for private equity funds that has really allowed them to flourish is that the, all the fees they take on these transactions, the management fees and the what they call the carried interest, their ongoing investments in these companies, they get taxed as capital gains and not as income. So it's at a lower tax rate for them to have earnings that they roll over into these funds and into from one company into another. So these private equity funds themselves can constantly be churning assets and, and seeking and, or extracting gains without really having to pay tax on them. So if I quote Charlie Munger, the industry sage of you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcomes. The incentives here are not necessarily going back to our now famous podcast with Fergal Sharkey to run a successful water system, the incentives are to run a financial exit. So when I see headlines such as UK private equity groups sell assets to themselves as assets routes dwindle, it makes me think of two things. One, the point around information, and two, the question around exits. So we kind of feel that we're just passing assets between ourselves that's what's going to require some information to value those assets. Firstly, break down the point about information. The important thing for private equity funds is to be able to get the money out at some point. And if you want to have this question of exits or who they sell to, the obvious one is they could turn around and take a company they took off the stock market five years ago and list it again. They can sell it to the public. Another is they can turn around and find an industrial buyer who they think needs this business, maybe didn't want to buy it before, the private equity company have done all the messy work of firing employees or, or curtailing their investment, and they sell it to a, a trade buyer. But the third one that seems a little shaky is that these private equity firms are setting up continuation funds. So right. they'll pass the fund, pass their investment in a company onto a new fund and say, well, we're going to also hand them the liabilities, the debt. And maybe that fund goes under, but again, they'll have been able to make a sale and book a gain in their own initial fund on the transaction. And there's a lot of question marks, even raised in the normally fairly pro-private equity titles like the Financial Times, no surprise there. But the private equity firms are suggesting, oh, well, this is a way for us to pass these Businesses on to a new owner when, as you say before, maybe they're just looking to remortgage and and take their money off the table. Yeah, it, it does seem a little bit murky in terms of you couldn't get your exit, so the fund could be in trouble. So what we do is we pass the parcel again, and somebody's going to be taking a hit. Not just that, but presumably the fund managers, the PE fund managers, are still charging fees throughout the continuation. Is that correct? Indeed, and and they're. It's like examining the salaries of a management in a company, which is in a sense a tax, if you will, on the operations, but an important one to enable it. And then having a management fee paid to the owner of that company is like a, another tax on top of that. 
<laughs> of course, dipping. they save money by not having to pay tax to the government because they roll those funds over and never really make a profit. And that's the, the concept of carried interest, which is probably too abstruse to get into here. But the simple issue is that the private equity funds are, are just moving money around and adding to the debts of companies. And that's why very often the companies that they buy, about one in five in 10 years goes bust. Now, I mentioned at the start the concept of buying a house, 99 debt, one equity, as long as the cost of financing the debt is covered by the value growth of the house, you can sell a house mm -hmm. of 101 and double your money. And you just mentioned mortgaging, remortgaging. If we look at continuation funds in this market, is this a case of just remortgaging with a new lender to pay off your original lender? Is this going from HSBC to Barclays? Is this essentially what we're doing if we could just keep it street level? Well, I want to go back to another Bubble Trouble episode we had about down rounds and VCs, because I think there's an important lesson here, which is the assets of these businesses are beauty in the eye of the beholder. They are, to an extent, what the private equity firm values them at or can justify to their accountants that they can value them at. And like these companies that have been listed on the stock market, Instacart is the recent example for $10 billion when its previous valuation had been as high as 40. Now, no one actually paid $40 billion at the time. They bought a tiny share in the company and made it worth $40 billion. They weren't putting all that money on the table to work. And a lot of the early investors would have invested at a valuation not of 40 or 10, but of two or four or one even, something mm -hmm. much smaller. So the question for the, the person owning the house that you bought for 99 to debt and one of equity if you can borrow that much money, is that can you reliably expect that there'll be someone who will pay 101 or 102 and that it won't fall to 50? Because if you're a fall to 50, then your one is very quickly wiped out because you still owe another 49 plus the 50 the house is worth. And if you remember back in the financial crises in the UK, for example, you had the negative equity trap. And this is what private equity funds could fall into a negative uh, equity trap uh. if the valuations of their assets start to fall and there's no one to step in and make the house purchase to at least make them whole on the 99 of debt. Now it clicks. And I know that was a very roundabout analogy, but I wanted to do it without any of the jargon that you would see in a Financial Times or Wall Street Journal article. Richard, is it fair to say that 99% of all finance can be related back to mortgages. It does feel like the whole world is on a mortgage. Will, as someone who recently took out a mortgage, and I'm sure it's near and dear to your heart in terms of the risks involved, it's something that most people can relate to, but it's also, yeah. as you say, a very simple metaphor to use. I hear it, I hear it. Now, before we get to the break, I think we should turn to the subject of regulation. We understand how this market works. We understand how they can mark their own homework. We can understand how if a fund is in trouble, you can just pass the parcel and keep that fund concealed from public view. But then this is private. Talk to me about regulation. What can the government do about private equity? So the reality is that as we talked about in our episode with Jesse Eisinger and, and many other episodes, there, there is this regulatory capture theory out there. And, and private equity has had a field day in the past 20 years, benefiting from this extremely low interest costs and borrowing costs and favorable tax treatment. And now that's being questioned both in the US and the UK. 
The U.S. is starting to look very closely at the tax treatment of profits from private equity funds, which the industry always argues should be on carried interest and and taxed like capital gains. But now, given the management fees and the recurring streams of cash flows that the private equity funds strip out of these utilities or transport companies or care homes or hospitals that they own, they're being told by the government, well, maybe this should be treated as income, which would be a much less favorable tax treatment. And in the UK, the UK regulator has started. And when the regulator starts looking into something, you know, it's already too late for the trouble. But the (laughs) regulator has started looking at private valuations and effectively private equity funds marking their own homework, possibly based on investments at, at, at higher valuations or ever more optimistic projections, but not ones that like with listed companies, they have to report every quarter to the to the authorities. Well, that sets us up for part two, where I want to go deep into this word, which is used in dinner parties all the time. And let's remind ourselves the purpose of Bubble Trouble is to improve your performance at dinner parties. But this word Ponzi schemes, but if I can wrap it up with part one, <laughs> it, if nobody got hurt taking a profit, people get hurt when you take losses. And what I'm yes. beginning to smell of this continuation fund is Maybe the fund is underwater and you should get out now. But the incentive structure is aligned so much that rather than get out now, which would be the rational thing to do, let's just roll it over, charge fees kick. for the process of rolling it over. Yes, and kick, the kick can it down, down the like can, And then somebody's going to take an even bigger hit in the future, by which time the actual PE fund managers will have gotten off the hook. So this is a, this is a developing topic. Uh, you called it right in the earlier podcast about you know bubbles appearing in private markets. I think we've identified one here. In part two, we're going to get all ponzied up. Back in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, part two of myself, Will Page, and Richard Kramer, exploring the anomaly where private equity funds play pass a parcel and sell assets to themselves. It's a tricky one to understand. We've been given a good grounding for Richard in part one in terms of what the funds are, how they manage their own information, how this makes regulation kind of tricky to do. But the word that comes to mind when you read about funds passing the parcel, perhaps not declaring their losses, uh, perhaps pushing the bad news on to another day and kicking the can down the road, is that word Ponzi scheme. And we know that people like to use Ponzi schemes as a flippant remark, 
to describe what I would call a house of cards. There's no real business there. You call it a Ponzi scheme. But I'm kind of keen to learn, Richard, just to, if you were to the Oxford English Dictionary for me here, what is a Ponzi scheme? And once we've established what it is and what it isn't, let's <laughs> explore whether what we're seeing with private equity just now relates to a Ponzi scheme. But go back to the definition first. So, well, I'm not really the best person to go into the definition of Ponzi schemes. I haven't studied all that formal, terrible economics history. I can relate, however, to some recent examples of Ponzi schemes. For example, the, the fraud perpetrated by the investor known as Bernie Madoff, right. who kept telling people he had these impossibly good returns, piling up money year after year after year, and faked the amount of money in the bank accounts. And eventually it was turned out that 64 billion or assets under management or whatever he had claimed he had wasn't actually nearly that much. It might've been 10 or 15 and the rest had been either siphoned off or never grew in the first place. So was that a each function individual, of it being private? No, it, well, it, it's a function of information asymmetry, but also the, the point is that every new investor he convinced to put money into the fund was used to fund the redemptions to any old investor who said, well, you've done so well for me, I want to get my money out. So you're always going to have people putting money in and taking money out of funds, right? And the Ponzi scheme idea is that each individual new money that's taken in is used to show or pay the claimants that are looking to take money out or show them that there is real money there. And the, uh, it's, it's a confidence game. And the issue with private equity is simple, that there's, it's built on a lot of debt. And while you can observe that who that is on the hook for that debt, some of it certainly is used to or secured against the cash flows from services that we all rely on every day, like our public utilities or, or hospitals or, or care homes or so forth. And ultimately, the cash flows from these businesses are going to the debt holders. And is that good for society? Is that creating value? Do you need to have the intermediary taking all these fees? That's a major issue of, of social equity and economic distribution of assets that's frankly quite worried because when the Ponzi scheme collapses, someone has got to pick up the costs of running these assets, much like you heard on Radio 4 a few weeks ago that we're supposed to be adding a surcharge to our bill, all of us as water customers, to pay for the money that the water companies haven't invested in infrastructure in the past decade because it's all been siphoned off for the debt holders. And so the Ponzi scheme issue is that we're being asked to add more money, throw bad money after good, when the good money was stripped off by the the people who had loaned money to the to the cash flow stream that's called our water bill. So in defense of continuation, maybe it's just not the right time to plan an exit. We need a little bit more runway. And that's what you do, what you do. You you roll the fund over into a new fund. But surely the the, the driver of continuation funds is bad news. Well, I think the the risk with continuation funds is very simple that you're dumping these assets that you don't want to have any more into a new fund and let that fund sink or swim or more likely drown. And that's okay because we want to ring fence ourselves from the liability. We just want to take the, the assets. 
So the people going into that new fund really are being subject to a Ponzi scheme then, surely. And, and that's the question of how can you have the buyer and the seller be effectively the same entity? Are you just taking some assets out and putting them into a fund that you, as we saw on the big short, you designed to fail in the first place? Who knows? Maybe they're taking out insurance against the debt failing of those new continuation funds and they're going to get paid when it goes bankrupt. There are bubbles appearing on the surface of the water here. There really are. Tell me this. If if this bubble burst, tell me what happens now? Like, walk me through a scenario where this thing blows up in our face. So, So there's two big problems with exits now and back to whether it's IPOs or trade sales or continuation funds. And the first one is that it's hard to avoid for everybody because the cost of borrowing has gone from 0% to 5% or more. So none of that debt is in perpetuity. You have to roll it over at some point. You said you've got a five-year mortgage at 1.4%. At some point, you know that rate is going to go up or you'll have to pay your mortgage off. That cost of borrowing is going to go up. And the returns that the private equity funds have to get to justify those borrowing costs, to pay them, to pay them back, as they're refashioning a business in a difficult macro economy, that's one giant weight on one side. And on the other side, if you look at the companies that private equity has been buying in the last few years, remember Wall Street and all these corporate raiders and plunderers, they bought most of the best ones already. And they've been doing it for 20 years. So what we've got now is the leftovers, the things themselves that might have been bought in bubbles. And just like the VC industry, they've got to find someone to take it off their hands at a time when prices are plunging. The real estate assets they thought they were getting, the commercial real estate they thought they were getting when they bought this high street shopping chain, well, that commercial real estate is plunging in value. So not only do you have your costs going up, but your assets are getting deflated or frankly, maybe finding no buyer for them. So those two things together could leave these trillions of private equity funds, which we don't have good visibility into, in a real pickle. And talk to me about the exit game here. I mean, can you see a scenario where the exit game starts to improve for private equity, or do you really think they're in a catch-22? Well, the problem with the exit game is, as you would imagine in a crowded theater where someone yells fire, let's hope and pray there isn't a fire, but everybody stampedes for the exits, kind of like a bank run. Because people can see the rising interest costs, people can see there's, there's debt that needs to be paid back. They understand that making sales now might be more advantageous than waiting for a better price because there's as many more or more risks to the downside. And they have a lack of confidence in valuations. And they may also have a limited ability to keep rolling over that debt because the people who lend the money out may have higher and higher requirements or be more and more cautious themselves. And those two things that were foundational to private equity, namely its unlimited availability of cheap debt and the freedom to act without direct scrutiny are both kind of drying up. So So, if that creates a stampede to the exits, then you've got a a problem because these are the owners of our hospitals and utilities and, and, and even newspapers. I mean, the USA Today publisher Gannett in the US is owned by private equity. So their natural inclination will be to let AI write all the stories for the newspapers. That's an interesting thought of cost-cutting. Well, 
I don't God has a hu- idea. Human integrity principles right there, as Crispin Hunt said at the FTB Ken panel, if a cannibal Absolutely. eats with a fork, do we call that progress? Yes. So so just I want to get a historical benchmark into all of this, and we're going to turn to smoke signals, but just very quickly, we had a thriving private equity business when we had normal interest rates of five, six, seven percent. We had an absolutely booming private equity business for the past fifteen years when interest rates were zero percent. The challenge, though, is when interest rates go up. It's not where they were, it's the fact they're going up. That's what's leading to the squeeze. It's like when you explain duration to us when we're looking at the SVB bank situation. Is there something similar to that here? Well, and and if you look in a number of other areas where private equity might realize gains, for example, the fact that you've had effective deflation of wages for the past 15 years, right? Right. Wages have not kept pace with inflation and people have been progressively worse off. And remember, private equity tends to buy businesses where there are a lot of zero hours, low wage workers. Maybe that's reversing because now you have a national minimum wage in the U.S. of $15 and and recruiting people into care homes is incredibly difficult for them to keep the care home attendees paying and also keep them safe. So debt costs are Uh, rising, labor costs are rising. We have a bit of a credit crunch on our hands. We do. And again, the hope for projections of these companies that are owned by private equity, we don't know how much optimism was baked in to please the lenders or to support hard-headed managements. And that, I think, is one of the big gaps when you look at, for example, the multiple layers of private equity that own our water utilities and the conflicts of interest that some of those utility managements have between paying back the bondholders versus making sure that we have clean drinking water and a good infrastructure. I'm going to get to smoke signals, but before I do, I, I feel like I have to go to that dark car park and all the president's men and find deep through and ask, follow the money. Mm-hmm. Just very quickly, when we discuss star fund managers, it always ends up in talking about fees. Yeah. How does the fees work in the world of private equity? So, look, I'm, it's not my field of expertise. I can only tell you what I read copiously on the likes of the Stephen Schwartzmans of the world and the Carlyle Group and the KKRs of the world, which are which are major, major investors in many companies. And there are hundreds and dozens more. They just are really not generally known to the public. And clearly, these private equity managers have benefited not just from the appreciation and value of the companies that they bought and improved and fixed, but also all of the assets they were able to lever up and buy on the cheap and turn around and dispose of. So they're giant transaction creating machines, which naturally attract around them all the enablers of law firms and accountants and investment banks that want to help them make those transactions and benefit from catnip. It's catnip. It is catnip. And that's why we we had a previous bubble trouble about private capital and the way in which that sort of observable purview of the regulators looking out over the banks is starting to get very hazy because kind of the 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 dark force on the other side of the moon still a major gravitational pull is all that private capital whether it's sitting in sovereign wealth funds or private lenders and all of a sudden the government doesn't see where the debt is building up and doesn't have the same visibility of where flows of money are going in the system. I hear it. And you did mention KKR there. I have to tell our listeners, if you do want to watch the best lesson in economics in the history of 
cinema, you can go into YouTube and watch the film Barbarians at the Gate for free. And it is one of the funniest economic lectures of all time. A company which specialized in baby food and tobacco and the biggest leveraged buyout in history. And boy, was it a smoke signal for things to come. Now, on those well, and, words... And before, before we get to that, one of the really interesting things about the type of companies that private equity has had to buy, and this is, I was reading some fascinating comments in the FT about the, the, the private equity exits article. And, and one great point that was made is there just aren't very many true management buyouts anymore, where the, the management of a company says, you know what, we all want to band together, borrow money and back ourselves and really run this business. Uh, and that, I think, shows that in the past 10 years, a lot of that capital has gone to existing businesses that, as you say, barbarians at the gate, the plunderers came in and, and stripped all the assets, dressed up the bride, so to speak, to marry off divisions of these businesses and try to create a sum of the part story for investors. But what they were really doing was facilitating a long string of transactions to enrich themselves, not to improve the businesses. I hear it. I hear it. This this does require smoke signals. I think you've laid quite a worrying scenario for us. And as you, you take us through these smoke signals, I'd ask you to keep in mind the difference between a finance economy and a real economy. People listening to the show be thinking, if this blows up, does it blow up in our face? Does it blow up in their face? But take me through it. Give us a couple of smoke signals which make you think, ah, you see a headline, you read a comment, you hear something in the corridor that makes you think, mm, there's trouble ahead here. There's, this thing is coming off the rails. Okay, so the first one is really a simple one. Who knows best, right? The clever financing guys engineering the balance sheet and cash flows and asset sales of a company or the people who work on the company on the ground providing the basic service. And I, what really worries me across society is the way we've normalized this financialization of every asset, the securitization of every asset, whether it's publishing rights secured out for the next 50 years of a hit song <laughs> or a private equity manager sitting in one of the tranches of debt owning our water companies, we have divorced a big chunk of the economy from its actual operation. And to me, that's a real smoke signal because we should be letting the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies who are great at discovering drugs be the ones who call the two there or the Utility managers who know how to do the boring work of making sure that less than half of the water that goes into the system of London sewage pipes actually comes out in people's homes. Uh, <laughs> we need to allow the real managers to run these businesses, not the financial overlords who are extracting a huge rent on top of that and making it much harder for these people to run these businesses because they're demanding unrealistic profit expectations just to service all the debt they piled on. So I really come back to a big smoke signal is, is we should be asking who knows best how to run these companies, the finance guys or the real managers. Will, let me give you one other example of, of my brush with private equity, because for a while in London, while my children were being privately educated, and I won't bore you with all the details of why that had to happen and, and what it cost, well, the school that they were going to was bought by private equity. And of course, you could see the changes back to what you were saying about letting the experts run things, that all of a sudden there was more pressure on the teachers. There was more marketing and glitz around the school, but fewer resources. And I always felt a little unseemly that some portion 
of my school tuition was going not to pay those poor and hardworking teachers who were struggling to get a really good salary and live in London, but was going to service the debt that was getting layered onto the, the value of the school buildings that my kids were attending. And we left that school pretty soon after because we didn't like the direction under private equity. So private equity is responsible for a lot of very critical businesses for, that people rely on, but they may not have the same incentives that people want to see those businesses accomplish, namely providing great education or high-functioning utilities or terrific public transport. Or as your former panelist at the FT Weekend once said, James Anderson, formerly of Bailey Gifford, your job as a fund manager is not to sell at the peak and buy at the trough, it's to fund successful businesses. And I just think the incentive structure here with private equity is misaligned with the needs of the people. And maybe a second smoke signal, maybe something about who sets the rules here? Well, absolutely. I mean, when, when an industry like private equity complains after all the trillions uh, I think they've made in terms of self-enrichment of the profits of all these funds, they complain about regulation. And we hear warnings now in esteemed publications like the FT that they're having trouble selling assets. And God forbid, there may be a bubble bursting, or at least their conditions are getting much more difficult. And unfortunately, the pension funds of California retirees and Texas teachers and loads of other university endowments and else and UK pension funds all have big holdings anywhere from 15 to 30 or 35 percent of their assets in private equity. We should really be worried that it's too late, that everybody's already swallowed the bait, gone into private equity. They've realized that as long as the music was playing, they would get a tax benefit and they could rely on cheap borrowing. And now that they might not have those two things to rely on, they have to find someone to offload their problems onto. And it may be too wide and deep of a moat to cross as a problem to offload without, unfortunately, us taxpayers getting stipped with the bill. Well, Richard, I hope my audience will agree with me. This has been a, a learning curve podcast. I went into this podcast thinking I was going to learn about the known unknown world of private markets getting a little frothy, a little ahead of their skis, as you always like to say. And what I'm learning is this is going to affect no known markets of the public sector, as many of these private players own our public utilities. And maybe to close out with just a thought to share with our audience, I always looked at the role of the private sector delivering public services as a little bit sceptical. The argument is the private sector is more efficient than the public sector because it can go bust. But if you bring the private sector into on a public service that can't go bust, what happens to those efficiencies? Aha, says the government, we can always take that public sector good back under public control. But to quote Jesse Eisenhower's Chicken Ship podcast, all the expertise that goes into running those public utilities drifts into the pilot set, private sector, mm. reduce the credibility of the state to take it back under control, and we are where we are. And it just, for me, what this podcast has done is it's really woken me up. And I'm not in good health today, but it's really woken me up to the risk that we have a financial bubble that's clearly getting quite close to the edge, but with huge real economy implications should this bubble burst. So on that slightly pessimistic note, Richard, I want to thank you very much for this crash course in private equity. And we're going to be closing this podcast off and we'll be back with you next time. Thank you so much. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nussum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.